The following is my conversation with Dr. Adam Ghazali, a renowned neuroscientist and innovator in the field of cognitive neuroscience. With a profound passion for understanding the intricate workings of the human brain, Dr. Ghazali has dedicated his career to exploring the intersection of technology, neuroscience, and medicine. Born with an insatiable curiosity, Dr. Ghazali pursued his education at some of the world's most prestigious institutions. He obtained his bachelor's degree in physiology and neuroscience from the University of California, Los Angeles, and went on to earn his medical degree from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Continuing his pursuit of knowledge, he completed his residency in neurology at the University of Pennsylvania, followed by a postdoctoral fellowship in cognitive neuroscience at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Ghazali's groundbreaking research focuses on understanding the neural mechanism underlying attention, memory, and perception. Through cutting-edge technologies such as neuroimaging, electrophysiology, and virtual reality, he strikes an un to unravel the mysteries of the brain and unlock its incredible potential for enhancing human cognition. So hi, Adam. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. I just want to start from like the beginning. What made you start, like what sparked the interest with like studying brain and cognition? So not something that you just like, you know, wake up and like, that's what I want to do with my life. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's a, it's a long um, answer, so I'll give you a very short one. Um, I, I mean, my interest in the brain goes back almost 40 years now. Um, ever since I was a little kid, even when I was seven years old before I knew what a scientist was, I wanted to be one. Someone described a little bit about what science was and I was like, oh, I want to do whatever, whatever that is. Um, I didn't discover an interest in the brain until I was an undergraduate um, while I was in university. When, when I was in high school, I thought I was going to go into space and astronomy and cosmos study, largely inspired by Carl Sagan and, and all of, of that work. But um, I really stumbled upon uh, the brain um, as a topic of, of interest in a class that was not related to neuroscience. It was just a, um, a, a class on the history of the future, it was called. And that was it. I've been interested in the brain ever since. My graduate uh, work and my PhD work was in neuroscience. And I was always interested in cognition, but most of my research um, when I was a graduate student um, was very molecular, anatomical. I was looking through a microscope, not really studying human cognition. Only after that, um, after I did my residency in neurology, did I decide that I wanted to study cognition in humans. And so it's been a slow evolution for me uh, from an interest in the brain to an interest in very cellular anatomical models of understanding the brain to human cognition. So in your book, you speak about this, in the book, The Distracted Mind, you explore the impact of technology and attention and overall on focus. Can you discuss a little key findings and what you recommend based on your research that you've come across? Yeah, the, the book was largely um, inspired by my work at UCSF, where I was studying the neural mechanisms of interference and interference meaning both distraction and multitasking and essentially understanding the um, the reality that our brains are not very good at managing multiple tasks and dealing with a lot of distracting information and really characterizing that at a neural level using functional MRI and EEG, also showing how it gets worse as we get older. So that's, that's what really inspired the book for me is to turn 
that research that I had been doing for many years into something that was presentable to the public. Also working with my co-author, Larry Rosen, trying to understand how the insights from the laboratory were mirrored by uh, what's happening in the real world. And Larry's more of a field psychologist looking at how children are impacted by using social media or texting. And um, so combining both a, a basic neuroscience perspective on distraction as well as a real world um, view of it as impacted by technology and then giving an evolutionary perspective on it. So some of the main theses are that our brains, although quite evolved in what we are capable of doing, are really very ancient in many ways and still respond to what I refer to in the book as bottom-up stimuli. So bright lights and sounds and vibrations pull our attention away from our goal and how these competing forces diminish and fragment our attention from accomplishing our goal. So it's sort of the modern day story of, uh, of distraction that people are beginning to understand. Uh, if anything, that book has only become more popular since the COVID pandemic, um, as people uh, begin to have the time maybe to recognize how distracted they are. And then the book moves from that premise to uh, really some more practical advice on how you manage to live in this amazing but complicated technical world uh, where communication flows globally in seconds and you have every um, piece of information you could ever dream of in your pocket. I mean, this is just not what our brains evolved to, to, to you know, not the environment that they evolved to be in. And so really two messages. One is that you can change your brain, which maybe we'll talk about more. And that's what I do with all my time is, is try to design approaches even to use technology, mostly to use technology to improve brain function. But then the other approach, which is not something that I uh, do in my research uh, career, but I do in my daily life, is to modify your behavior so that you're interacting with technology in a better way. So, for example, clearing your workspace so it's not so clouded, you know, crowded and distracted. Um, really spending a little time every day to single task and get better at the act of single tasking and not multitasking. Um, if you are just incapable of multitasking, for example, driving and texting, take your phone, put it in your bag, and leave it in the trunk. Right? These oh. these are the different approaches that uh, that I take personally to. Um, you know, to minimize distraction from technology. And then soon, soon enough, you build new habits, healthier habits of interactive technology, and you can actually have your phone on you while you drive without reaching for it. So those are the two big um, actionable aspects that I talk about. One is behavioral change and the other is brain change. So you kind of touched upon multitasking. There's this whole myth, uh, like when I got my first job, I, I, I started working in events and my boss, pulled me aside and she's like, you know, working especially in events, multitasking is one of the key skills that you need to have. And I was like, I don't know how people do that. It's like literally everybody on the team can do it. You should be able to like, you know, pick up. There's so many things going on, spinning plates and everything. And I can't have you do that. And to this day, I've not been able to multitask. At one time, I do one task. And then if I switch, I can switch, switch if that's fine. But I cannot do one thing, 10 things at one time or like even two things at one time. Um, is is this just uh, like a brain function issue for me, or is this just a general problem that most people should should face? I'm assuming. Yeah, so, some people refer to this as the myth of multitasking, in that we we want 
to do more than one thing. So from, from a behavioral perspective, multitasking occurs all the time. It means that you're doing more than one task. But from a neural perspective, the reason why that phrase of the myth of multitasking has, has arose is that when you look at the brain, you see that if two tasks are demanding of attention, so I'm not talking about something like chewing gum, which is like becomes completely automatic, even walking to some degree, not completely is somewhat automatic. But if the two tasks are attention demanding, then your brain does not parallel process them. So it doesn't multitask in the purest sense of the word. word. It's really switching between those tasks. And it can do so, um, and it could do so very rapidly, so much so that it doesn't necessarily often feel that you are um, switching, but you are switching. And with each switch, there's something that we call a cost associated with it. And that cost could be a degradation of the information in each of those separate tasks. It could be um, some time delays and processing delays. And so it presents itself as usually performance deficits that uh, that can be recorded. We've recorded them across many different multitasks compared to single tasks. So degradation of performance. Uh, people feel like they're getting a lot done. Um, because they're doing a lot of things in the same window. But if you look at the performance of those things, they are degraded compared to single tasking. That's a pretty widespread finding. Um, you can get better at it, but uh, there are some inherent limitations in our brains that prevent us from doing that. And there's a lot of variability across individuals. There are some like super taskers, very rare people that are capable of doing this at a very high uh, degree. But most people, are not great at it, even if they're unaware that they're not great at it. Um, maybe you're just more aware, and so you don't allow yourself to do it, uh, which is probably more likely to be true. Uh, but it's something that uh, I believe is becoming less requested for workers as mm -hmm. it's increasing, as the awareness is growing, hopefully some of it from our own research, that our brain just does not perform at the highest level uh, when you are parallel, when you are attempting to parallel process multiple streams of information. Now, I've only talked about the consequences of multitasking on performance, which is quite clear, and what happens in the brain. But there's a whole cascade of consequences like stress um, and mood changes and um, anxiety and other aspects of uh, even degraded uh, relationships if you're multitasking when you're interacting with someone that's important to you. So there's a, a real broad array of negative consequences of multitasking that almost everyone suffers, whether or not they're aware of it. You kind of also mentioned about how you can train yourself to multitask, not to the same level as someone who's like a super, super multitasker. So what would you recommend if someone's like, okay, I've got tons of stuff to do and they have to be done like in the same time, let's say two tasks or three tasks at one go. What could like, what could one do? I'm not assuming this because it's going to be a perfect system, but what would yeah. you say? Yeah. I mean, I'd say like practice makes perfect, right, as the saying goes. And so doing it will probably lead to some increased proficiency. I would say a more realistic plan would be to say, do they really need to be done simultaneously? If you have three things that need to be done within an hour, it's probably better to do it in 20 minute intervals, as opposed to just rapidly move between them all. Um, so it's, it's hard to think of a situation where it would be better to actually try to multitask than to single task if they were attention demanding tasks. If they're not attention demanding, 
even if one of them is not, then it's a whole different game, right? So if you are washing clothes and um, and it's, it's pretty low level, nothing tragic is likely going to happen. It's fairly automated, but you also have to take an important call. That might be something that you could attempt to multitask. If you are going through your email and taking an important call, that is probably not the best multitasking plan because both of them are very high attention demanding activities. Both of them likely are important things that you wouldn't want to make a mistake on. And so that's a decision that you should probably not make. So I don't like presenting multitasking as a bad thing. It's nothing's good or bad. These are just decisions that you need to make with being informed of what's likely to occur. So you have to, if you recognize that you're going to have a performance degradation that may lead to a mistake, you have to decide where do you want to make that mistake? Making that mistake when washing your clothes or your dishes is probably fine. Making it while driving your car or responding uh, to an email uh, from, from your boss is probably not what you want to be doing. So it's more about deciding when to multitask. And multitasking is more fun, um, which is probably why we seek it, right? Our, our brains are respond, um, our reward systems of our brains respond to novelty. And multitasking has a higher novel load per time because you're moving between things. So I understand and I even feel personally why the draw is to do that. You just have to make a decision about it. And so I, I don't think the goal is to become like a really good multitasker, but if you if you do engage in it, you will likely get a bit better, but you will likely still have limitations. And then what about, like you also kind of mentioned about create clutter and then focus is that, and that there can, the connection with it. Now, a lot of creatives always say, you know, like I, uh, I feel comfortable in the, the mess that is it. This is organized chaos and that helps me focus. How is that similar to when someone wants just like a clear desk, nothing distracting them versus this? Is this something linked to uh, the way our brain functions? This is how creatives work. This is how, you know, like, you know, the left and the right brain thing, or it's completely different. Well, you know, this is this is where it gets more nuanced and more complicated in that in general, our brains work best with low levels of interference. But there are some situations that present um, more complicated findings if you look across the literature or even or if you're introspective about your own ability to deal with interference. So interference being defined as information that is not in alignment with your goal. So for example, um, an example of a distracted environment that people like even beyond creatives often is like a coffee shop. So some people go into a coffee shop and they will pull, open up their laptop and they will work. They might write. I actually wrote some of the distracted mind in a coffee shop. Um, and at first it seems um, counterintuitive, right? It's like, why would you not go to the most quiet place you could find, like a library or quiet office to write? Why would you go to a place that's likely noisier than, than the place you just came from? And we did a little bit of work on this, but there's not a ton of research. I actually called the coffee shop effect in that sometimes it seems, and some of this is still hypothesis, that having external noise can help quiet internal noise. So interference doesn't just come from the outside. It can also come from the inside. Uh, so you could have interference without having any external distraction, right? You could be trying to work and keep thinking about 
something that happened earlier in the day, a fight with your significant other or something that happened with your at work the day before, or maybe it's something internal like um, you're hungry or or you have a pain. Um, so internal interference is also um, a imp is also a factor. Uh, it seems that it might be that having some external interference, like some background noise, engages the suppression system and helps quiet the internal noise. So some people might actually say that if they go to a quiet place, their mind keeps working and they can't focus because of that. So there is an intersection uh, between external interference that likely uh, plays into this idea that some distraction outside might help focus, but this is an area that's not really well researched yet, but that's something that I'm, I'm interested in. And then one other thing, another related point, I, it's not exactly what you're asking, but it is relevant in, in terms of creatives and distraction. So what I'm describing, uh, this, the environment that I'm suggesting that you put yourself in when you're trying to accomplish a goal, especially an important one and one that is time sensitive, is one that's relatively free of distraction. But it may not be the best environment to actually be creative in. So a lot of creativity occurs at the intersection of things that you are planning and things that are unplanned. And you make the connection between them and you're like, wow, that's cool. I just had this idea or I just saw this um, intersection between two fairly unrelated things that then leads to something really beautiful, powerful, artistic, some creative expression. And so again, it's not like distraction is good or bad. Um, so having some, uh, some some distractions around you could actually stimulate creativity. It just depends when you want to expose yourself to them. And if you really needed to get something done in 15 minutes, is that the time to be creative or that's the time to get that email out or write that article or have that conversation? Makes sense, yes. Can you explain the concept of neuroplasticity and how does it relate to your work? Yeah, so the, the concept is, uh, it's, it's quite, basic to explain, but quite remarkable in practice and still a major area of research um, in neuroscience. And the basic idea is that our nervous system, um, our brain and, you know, throughout our nervous system even uh, is, is this capacity to change and modify itself. Um, and when I say modify, I mean at all the levels that we've ever studied it. So from the structure, like looking at neurons and dendrites and axons, and even the number of neurons, uh, to the physiology, so how active they are and how susceptible they are to firing, um, and even the chemistry, how neurochemicals, neurotransmitters um, upregulate or change, all, all of these phenomena, all of these features of how the brain operates is capable of changing. None of it is fixed. And it changes in response to experience. That's one of the main driving forces of plasticity. It's the basis of learning. But it also changes in response to injury in terms of restoring and repairing. Um, so this is what we mean by neuroplasticity, the capacity of the brain um, and the nervous system to change itself, um, usually in response to learning or injury. And it is a powerful feature of the brain. Um, for a long time, it was thought that the brain developed and after these critical stages of development largely was static or declined. Now we know that's not true. The brain retains plasticity even if at a lower level throughout our lifespan. So the, the fact that our brain has this 
ability is really interesting to me. It's something that I've been researching since I was a graduate student for over 30 years. And understanding the mechanisms, the neural mechanisms of this has been was a part of my early career. And over the last 15 years, I've been interested in how we can harness this phenomena and drive it by very targeted, personalized experiences to change the brain. So when we talked earlier about the distracted mind and the advice of what are the what are the solutions to living in this world that's only getting more complicated? I talked about changing your behavior and we gave examples of that. And the other I mentioned was changing your brain. How do you change your brain? Well, you change your brain through neuroplasticity. The fact that it has this capacity to change in response to experiences is something that is very uh, fundamental, but also very profound. It leads to all these opportunities for growth and development throughout our lives. Um, but not all experiences are created equal, um, and not all of them lead to change, and not all of them lead to enduring change, and not all of them lead to positive change. And there are experiences, tragic experiences, that can take place over minutes and then detrimentally impact the function of your brain for the rest of your life. Right? So we call that post-traumatic stress disorder. That's essentially what it is. It's a neuroplastic response to an event that leads to a, a negative outcome in terms of function. Uh, but the reverse can occur as well. Um, and that's, you know, transformative experiences, um, interactions that really change your brain so that it functions in a more positive manner. And this can occur with an event. Um, and it can also occur with a slow practice, an event that takes place and leads to change slowly over time. So the example for the rest of the body would be physical exercise, right? Um, you can go to the gym, you can lift weights, you could strengthen those muscles so that they get stronger and stronger and stronger. It doesn't happen in one day. It takes time, but it adapts. It's a type of plastic response. Uh, you could do it for your cardiovascular system too. Your whole aerobic capacity can increase with the training. Same thing with the brain. If the brain is exposed to challenges that are targeted uh, to neural networks, which is something that I think is important. Um, and we're also I'm also very interested in adaptive challenges, challenges that really push you right to the level of your abilities. You could change the brain and optimize its performance. And so to summarize, um, when we're thinking about interacting and living a, a better life in this world that is getting much more complicated as technology evolves, one of the potential solutions, the one that I am very interested in and spend all my time on is how could technology, which has challenged us in such a fundamental way, be positioned, developed, and validated as tools to harness plasticity to improve the function of our brain? And that quickly turns towards the question that I wanted to ask you about is your video game, the game that kind of helps with building neuroplasticity and it doesn't make sense, but it still makes sense. Can you just explain a bit or first of all, how it started and then how it works and what, like, what are the findings from it? Like, I know that like it's being used to treat ADHD is like, where does that come from? Sure. Okay. Yes. Great questions. Big ones though. So I try not to ramble on too much and be precise, but this is a big one. So leaping off of the, of what we just talked about, that our brain is plastic and it responds to experience, led me to think about what type of experiences we might create 
to lead to maximal plasticity and the optimal outcomes. And this was in 2008, so 15 years ago. And the, uh, the idea that I came up with was to deliver an experience through a video game. And there's many reasons why, not the least of which games are fun. And funs are, fun is you know, a special type of experience, right? It's very engaging. You can immerse yourself in it. You could do it deeply. You want to return to it. These are all qualities of experiences that I thought would be important if you're actually trying to lead to meaningful and sustainable changes. So fun. Um, but there's a lot of things that are fun besides video games. Um, but video games, because they are digitally delivered experiences, digitally delivered fun experiences, ideally, have all the advantages of other digitally delivered experiences in that they can be accessible to people because everyone has a device, a phone or a tablet or some or soon will. And they can um, they can do them at home. They don't have to come into a special center to do them. Uh, so there's a lot of advantages to that. The other advantage of delivering an experience through a digital platform is that you could use the processor in your device as well as the sensors that record your performance, like tapping or moving or um, you know back in the day using a joystick. You could use that information to adapt the challenges and the rewards that a person is receiving in real time. We call that the closed loop. So I call this a closed loop experience. That's like almost the most important thing I have to say besides the fact that we are <laughs> very distracted by technology is that technology can also create these closed loop experiences. These are very unique experiences. They're not how we often interact with the world. These are experiences where the environment that you're exposed to is being updated based upon you. And so it's very personalized uh, way of challenging and rewarding someone. Very hard to do in real world interactions, but very possible to do with digital interactions where you have a processor that's collecting data about you and then using that data in an informed way to challenge and reward you appropriately. And so this was, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I would have described this quite so clearly back in, you know, 15 years ago, but it was the, all of these factors, what, what was part of that original idea to build a video game to help improve attention abilities. And then it is a long, complicated 15 year story um, arriving at um, the latest where we have a game to treat ADHD. But the, the, the cliff notes, the quick summary is that we built this game uh, based upon our research that suggested what type of interaction would lead to improvements in attention abilities. Um, we built this with friends in the video game industry because we wanted it to be more than just a task. We wanted it to be fun to some degree, at least. Um, it wasn't a, pro a product, it was a prototype. We then did a lot of deep dive research, including brain imaging with EEG to understand what happens. And we published this in the journal Nature in 2013, which is as big as you get for, for a scientist. It was the cover of the journal and a really important moment for us because it showed that this idea that you can build an experience and deliver it through the video game and lead to meaningful changes. So what we found was that older adults were able to improve their attention abilities and their short-term memory outside of the game um, if they did it for one month. And, and we showed with neural recordings what happens in the brain to lead to that change. So that's what led to uh, 
what has occurred now is the formation of a company called the Gilly. So I have two hats that I wear. I'm a university professor, two big hats. Um, I wear lots of little hats, but two big hats. Um, I'm a university professor and I have a center called Neuroscape that I started where we have many video games, not just the one that I described, but all closed loop video games. We could talk about those more if you want. But then that first video game, Neuroracer, left the lab, went to this company, Achille, and then spent a decade of development in terms of creating a much better video game, better art, music, story, better interactivity, but still preserving the cognitive engine, the closed loop system that drove the original game, Neuroracer. And then almost 30 clinical trials have occurred over this last decade in different populations to see how this game, which improved attention abilities in older adults, we published that in a nature paper, might help attention in different populations. So a big study was performed out of Duke by Scott Collins as the lead. And what this study showed was that children with ADHD showed that if they, we, we showed that if they played the game uh, for six weeks, we were able to improve their attention ability outside of the game and independent tests. This was then positioned to the FDA in the US, in the US um, for approval as a class two medical device as a treatment for inattention and ADHD. In 2020, it was approved, which was you know, a silver lining during COVID for me. And uh, you know, this had been a 12 year journey up until that point, uh, making it the first ever video game approved by the FDA as a, as a medical treatment. Um, and that game is now available via prescription for eight to 12 year olds with uh, inattentive and mixed ADHD to treat um, their, their attention. And so we're excited that we went all the way from an idea to a research project to a company to FDA approval of a new type of treatment for ADHD. So I hope that makes sense. I shoved a lot in there, but it was 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, but that's that's the idea behind a video game as a essentially a cognitive enhancement technology. And then the transition of it from a experimental prototype to a product, an FDA approved product that is now out there as a treatment for ADHD. What other conditions would, like neural conditions, are you working on with your games? Like you said, ADHD, this is one off, and you said there were, there's so many other games. So, yes. now, so where, where, how deep is the rabbit hole? Like, where do we go from here? Oh, it's deep. It's deep. So, I, I'd like to make the point that what we believe based upon you know, dozens of studies, and even the underlying hypothesis is that there's nothing specific about this game for ADHD. This game improves attention abilities, and we've seen that occur in many populations, such as populations uh, with depression that often have attention impairments, multiple sclerosis, lupus, autism, early dementia, you know, met pretty much every population we have studied, we see attention improvements. And there are many, many clinical populations that need improvements in attention, pretty much all of them where there's some impact on brain function. So even broader PTSD, we actually even have some data on PTSD as well, um, on and on, anxiety disorder and stress and post, you know, COVID and uh, chemo fog, um, on and on, we see that pretty much anything that affects the brain leads to an impairment of attention. And so, we uh, at Achille and Neuroscape will continue to study different populations to validate this tool as an approach that can be used to improve attention. But the story is much bigger, which is why I said it's a deep rabbit hole, because that's just one game. 
um, that is very targeted to improve this type of attention. But at Neuroscape, we have almost a dozen games, and some of them are closed eyes, meditation-based games. We have virtual reality games where you navigate different environments that improves long-term memory. We have rhythm games that also improve short-term memory for faces and on and on. So we're really interested not just in one particular game and one particular population, but this bigger vision um, of what, what I describe as experiential medicine. Remember, the video game is like our pill. It's not what's in the pill. What's in the video game, what the video game is doing is delivering an experience, and experience drives plasticity. So that's why I think of it as experiential medicine, a way of using a digital delivery platform and the fun and engagement and the art and the music and the story of the game to deliver an experience to lead to these changes. And so there's really no limit to what is reasonable to hypothesize. Of course, you have to develop it, you have to test it, that takes around five years just to get the first signal. And then of course, if you wanna move it out into the public, you need to do more and more testing to create confidence that this is not a waste of time or not just fun, which is not a waste of time, but that this is actually leading to something that's meaningful. And that's sort of the pathway that we're on. So you mentioned experiential medicine. This is completely changing the way we will see how we like, you know, prescribe, especially for children, because like nobody wants to give them pills. You don't know the side effects. You sometimes you know the side effects, and but like you have no choice. Uh, this doesn't have that. But then alternatively with video games, there's this whole group of people say video games are bad for you. They create uh, more aggressive teens. So is there the opposite side of it where games given the fact that they can have neuro, cause neuro, create neuroplasticity and affect your attention. Are there games or certain things that you need to watch out for that should be, shouldn't be in games because they're kind of affecting the way you function? Yeah, great question. I mean, for, first, because we, we just started talking about experiential medicine, I, I, think, it, it, I think it is gonna be a big part of our future. Um, I spent all my time working on it across so many different you know, directions. And I would put it, put it up there like molecular medicine, using a molecule, a drug, a pill, all the same thing to change the brain is, is the current paradigm. That's where we live now. If something's broken, give a pill for it. Experiential medicine has been around for thousands of years. Meditation, mindfulness practices, I would say is part of experiential medicine, even things like therapy, but it's always, it's often been like marginalized as the alternative medicine. I think digitally delivered experiential medicine, which is what I focus on, is going to show that we can really make this more mainstream medicine and compete with molecular medicine or work together with it. There's no reason necessarily to compete with it because I think there's a place that they can come together and lower the doses of the molecule so that you don't have side effects. That's a future I'm interested in. So I just wanted to pause on that because it might be a, like a really different way of thinking about medicine to your listeners who think about molecules of pill as medicine. Um, and this is a very different concept and one that is still new in terms of it, the digitally delivered version of it. But that being said, experiential medicine doesn't mean that it's all safe. Like molecules are good or bad, but experiential medicine is all good. That's not the way it is at all. I would say that anything that has the potential to do good can do harm. So it's all a two-sided sword 
the way I look at it. I mean, you can think that running is really good for you, but you can also train for a marathon and destroy your knees. And food is good for you, but you can eat too much or the wrong types of food. Drugs can save your life or kill you if they're poison, right? So everything has a yin-yang, right? Everything goes both ways. And it's the same thing for experiences and technology-delivered experiences. is you know, a perfect example of something that does cut both ways, which is sort of what I've been talking about, right? The distracted mind is an example of technology that's not being used thoughtfully or with intention. And when that happens, you create chaos in your life and distraction. You get in car accidents. You can't sleep at night because you're using your tools when you shouldn't be. Um, video games could be overused. They could be, they could have content that is negative for you. All of that is possible. And all of it needs to be taken seriously just because it's not a pill or you know, some uh, surgery that you're cutting into your brain doesn't mean it can't have a profound impact on you. As we said, PTSD is really just an experience creating a very, very negative outcome. So we should take um, very seriously the fact that all experiences are not good. Experiences can be quite negative in their in their outcomes. And so that is why we go through such extensive testing, including FDA approval for our treatments. Sometimes people are like, why take a video game through the FDA? Well, A, we want that rigor of efficacy to show that it does what we what we hope it will do, what we hypothesize it will do. But we also believe it's important to get safety um, considerations. Um, maybe the safety considerations are that it's just overused and replaces other good things. And we don't let people do that with our games because we limit their time that they can play each day and how many days a week they can play and how long they can play, you know, overall. So I think that your, your point is really well taken. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, there are going to be games that could potentially be negative and games that are going to be positive. It may not even be obvious to the person which there are. And so we have to get, we, meaning human society, has to get better at um, evaluating, validating, and sharing that information about what different experiences might do to you in the same way that we share nutritional information on everything you eat or you know, certain drugs are approved by the FDA, I think it is reasonable to understand the experiences that we engage in, what their outcomes and their impact on you might be. You've kind of mentioned in the past about how we're going through a cognitive crisis and like you know we have children are like you know less empathetic they have less compassion why what are what are the significant changes that are happening that like you know the younger generation is losing these key skills i would assume uh versus like you know the like what what's what's changing what high, what what has why has the frequency con suddenly switched so much yeah it's a good question so after I wrote The Distracted Mind as a book, I became at least aware of the, that the scope of the problem was much larger than I really described. And so I wrote a piece called The Cognition Crisis that's freely available online. And there I, I look at a bigger issue that it's not just that we're distracted. Um, that is clearly a big part of what causes it. But the, the consequences are much larger than I feel like I had stated. So I wanted to restate it. And what, what I mean by cognition crisis is that how we think pretty much across the board, how we focus our attention, how we feel um, emotions or regulate our emotions, empathy, compassion, how we make decisions, how we have imagination and creativity, our memory, all of it is not at the level 
I feel it needs to be in order to be healthy and live in this world that we are in right now. Um, and this is a world where our attention is constantly being fragmented by so many sources of information. Communication, as exciting as it is, leads to sometimes too much information uh, from sources that are unclear if they are valid, you know, so you get, you know, all the impact on uh, of misinformation uh, that has really degraded uh, what we are consuming, you know, consuming food and consuming information are very similar in my mind. And there's a lot of junk information out there that's not well labeled that is leading to a lot of challenges. So I think that this is what is happening and i think it is larger than what people would describe as a mental health crisis mental health crisis is usually referring to people who have clinical pathologies right diagnose diagnosed conditions of major depression anxiety disorder um you know dementia on and on that exists it is a big problem i am not diminishing it it affects over half a billion people around the world I'm just saying that the problem is way bigger than that. I'm saying that even if you do not have a clinical diagnosis, you likely are part of this cognition crisis I'm talking about, and that we are just not prioritizing, elevating how our minds work. It's not a global priority to enhance these abilities of the mind that, that I've been describing, and that we're paying paying a, a horrible price for, the, uh, price for this uh, lack of attention. I think it's probably always been there to some degree, although I would say that other times in human history, there have been societies that have really prioritized elevating and enhancing our minds. And you see it in ancient Greek culture and Japanese cultures and um, the Renaissance period and indigenous populations throughout the world have, have prioritized a little bit more on, on mind growth. I would say this is not one of those times. And um, that's sort of the main message. Now, is it getting worse? I, I think the evidence would suggest that it is. I, I wrote this piece actually before COVID. I think it would be an easier argument to say now that it's getting worse um, because COVID has aggravated what I was talking about. Um, so again, uh, another story that I wrote years ago that is becoming more relevant. And, um, you know, a lot of it has been aggravated by all the things that the pandemic caused, not the least of which is isolation, um, not going to school, all, all of those aspects, the stress and anxiety of, of losing jobs and, and deaths and things of that nature. But it was happening before the pandemic. And I believe a lot of it is because of the distracted mind that we are vulnerable to interference and we live in a very, very complicated rapid world of information processing because of the technologies we have. And we have not developed the systems to deal with them in a healthy way. And therefore, it has degraded our cognition from not a very great baseline. <laughs> <laughs> and nor have we put systems in place to counteract that. And from your like scientific background, what you would you recommend? Like, you know, imagine you're raising a child or like you have someone who's like, I'm at your mercy. Tell me what I should do. And like, you know, I don't want my like my abilities to decline so quickly that like I can't function. Yeah, that is another great and massive question. Um, I could I could not just imagine raising a child. I actually have a two year old. So I live this every day myself. And I also have a brain that I would like to be intact as I continue to get older. Um, you know, so I, I think that there's like on the societal level, which is where I spend a lot of time, right? 
talking with the FDA and the education system and the political level and, you know, this and globally, too. I'm off to South Korea in just a, a week. This is not, you know, a U.S. problem. And I know your audience is, is from all over the world and it's relevant all over the world. So we have to understand how we can improve our global systems that have been designed and should be there to improve how our brains function. So our education system and our healthcare system, right? That's what they should be doing. And they're, they're not doing a great job at that. Um, our education system has largely become very didactic and the transfer of information, but not the improving of the underlying process of how our brain works. Um, where do we, you know, and there are there are exceptions and there are schools that are embracing this more, but where is empathy and compassion on on the school curriculum? Um, how do we do we even record what a student's capable of in terms of their working memory and sustained attention? And then what do we do if we notice that it's not at the level it should be? So we need to instill and 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 introduce better diagnostic and interventional tools to improve cognition in our youth, independent of mental health uh, issues like clinical conditions. And we need to have a medical system that's not just reactive, that's not just waiting for someone to present with major depression or dementia. We need to be more proactive. We need to be earlier on supporting the health of our brains. And a lot of what we do in terms of creating video games and the tools that we develop are designed to be relatively safe uh, approaches that people can engage in to improve how their brains function and help with the cognition crisis. So that's my answer at the societal level, right? Where the institutions that are supposed to be there to support our brains need to change. And that is a big giant challenge. Changing in institutions like, you know, moving like an ocean liner, like it, it doesn't happen with just like a, you know, turn of a wheel. It's big. They're sticky. They're, they're, they're really hard to change. But that's what I spent almost, you know, so much of my time on is doing that. The other way of answering the question is like, what can I do as a person, right? Like I'm not society, I'm me, right? I, I get it, I'm part of society, but I also am not gonna wait for the education and medical system to change in order to be better. Um, so that's like where the behavioral change discussion I mentioned came in, um, comes in. So how do you engage in your technology interactions in a better way? Like what's, it, you know, the, the the point here is that you need to be in control. We need to be in control. I'm not speaking to anyone else any more than I'm speaking to myself or my daughter. Um, we need to be in control in how we use all of our tools, not just our cars um, and uh, you know other other devices, but but you know our information technology, our social media, our email, our video games, our phones in general. We have to make decisions, inform decisions. And, and stick to them by creating habits. So, you know, this starts from two years old, right? I'm like every other parent, it's complicated. There are phones, she sees me use my phone, she wants to use my phone too, I mean, she gets it, it's, it's, it's attractive. How do we make those decisions for our children? You know, I'm not saying I have all the answers here, but it is about control. It is about setting boundaries and setting rules and forming habits and engaging in our technology in a healthier way. But there are other things, all the things that we've been taught to keep our heart healthy, keeps our brain healthy. So sleep, eating right, which is a big question, what right is, um, what is the appropriate nutrition, things like the Mediterranean diet have 
a good amount of data. Um, stress management, I would say not no stress. Um, no stress is not great for your brain. Uh, your brain does need to be challenged, but helpless, hopeless, chronic stress is not good for your brain. And then uh, physical fitness, getting out and moving, engaging, uh, challenging your body, both from a strength point of view as well as a movement point of view is very critical. And um, I would say exposure to nature, I'm going to put in the list too, since it's something that's very important to me. And I think that it would be um, at least on the list of anything that I advise someone that wants to have a healthier brain and better cognition is to spend time and nature. So there's a lot of things we can do while we wait for the fancy tools that we're working on at Neuroscape and Achille and, and many other groups are working on to enter our lives. And um, those tools are not meant to replace these things either, right? They're just to other tools that you use in a time-limited fashion. So that's the sort of big message. And then what are your thoughts on like biohacking tools that people use? Like, so say there's uh, methylene blue and then there's like there's gachaga mushrooms or there's lion's mane. These are like key things that people keep using. I know that there's, they're not end all and that's not something that's not a baseline solution. But has there been research from your side and what are those findings on things like these? Like again, methylene blue is not very natural, but then there's lion mane. Yeah. You Does know, that the, affect? There's a lot of things, and I certainly have, I, I, we haven't researched them in, in the lab. I've done some online literature, scientific literature research, just because I'm curious um, if there's a signal. So when, when I bring something into our group, it's because there's a signal that there's something meaningful out there, even if it's not absolutely convincing, but enough that it's worth our time and energy. We have to raise funding to do it, to study it. Um, and a lot of the things that people use there's just not enough signal for me to do myself or to bring into our research world. There's a lot of them. Now, I'm not telling people not to do them. Everyone should be making informed decisions on their own, but there may just be very little data. And then you're, then you're judging other things like how dangerous it is, how much does it cost, how much effort does it take to do it? These are all the factors that go into decisions of what you take into your life to help you. Um, but when I'm making that decision um, to bring it into our research domain, which is not a trivial one, I'm looking for, as I said, a signal in the literature. It may not be perfect randomized controlled trials. They may only be animal research and not human research. Um, but I certainly would not take anything in if there was no signal at all. It's just not, it's just too risky for what we're we're doing right now. Um, so take lion's mane, for example, which is a type of mushroom. It's not a psychedelic mushroom. Uh, we also do research on psychedelics at Neuroscape. Uh, lion's mane would fall into like a functional mushroom people would describe where it may have benefits on plasticity. Um, there is research out there. I'd say there's a signal out there for lion's mane. I've convinced myself. Does that mean I'm going to use it personally? Probably not. Does that mean that we might bring it into our research lab and try to do like a really amazing study on it? maybe um so that's sort of how, how the decision process that i go about you mentioned psychedelic mushrooms so i'm definitely going to ask you about that so what's the research like especially with pdsd like it's been brought into the fold of like something that can be used as medication for someone who has uh, severe pdsd or depression and uh, or even addiction to drugs not specifically this ibogaine is used there's dmt studies what what are your thoughts on that? How does the future look like with it? 
Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I spend a lot of time thinking about psychedelic research uh, because it is now a division um, within Neuroscape led by a brilliant researcher, Robin Card Harris, who's one of the leaders in the field. We, he just joined us in Neuroscape um, during the COVID period, and we're very happy to have him, as well as um, Jenny Mitchell, who's another researcher in the space who's studying MDMA, um, which is ecstasy for PTSD treatment. Um, Robin uh, is just about to launch studies on um, as the lead on psilocybin, uh, which is the um, active ingredient from um, magic mushrooms and mushrooms. And uh, we're very interested in the impact of these compounds on um, cognition, you know, including mood regulation, um, both in clinical conditions as well as uh, for anyone as ways of improving brain function. So. I, I, I'd like to just preface any further comments by saying that I view these tools as experiential medicine as well. So even though these are molecules, um, they don't firmly fit into the category of molecular medicine the way we've envisioned it, that you take a molecule and you get an outcome. These molecules create an experience, usually a pretty powerful experience, and that experience leads to an outcome. That outcome could be good or it could be bad or it could be neutral um, or it could be good and goes away, right? So I would say these are molecularly initiated experiential medicines, which is why we're doing research on them in Neuroscape because it fits all the other experiential research that we're doing at, at UCSF at, at our center, Neuroscape. Um, so the things that really... Um, attract me to this as a research focus is that there's a signal out there. As I said, I'm always looking for that. There's some really convincing papers of these tools and, you know, we're, I'm putting, I'm lumping them all together here for, for brevity, but where we see positive outcomes in clinical trials on things like post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, addiction, other conditions are, are starting to yield interesting data. And so there's a signal that they're capable of inducing meaningful change. Uh, but what really attracted me to this field was the potential to guide and, uh, the experience that occurs when you take one of these compounds using technology, using sensory stimulation, um, you know, the, the, the tools that we create at Neuroscape, not necessarily pure games, but even environments like nature environments that we can build around a person. And the hypothesis is that an external environment delivered during a psychedelic treatment can lead to a better outcome, better safety, maybe even better efficacy by creating a, a safe, but also even positive nurturing an environment. And, you know, people in the field that have uh, been as practitioners for, for many years, even indigenous cultures use elements of experience of the experience and the environment to induce better outcomes, but it has not been studied in depth. And so that's the real interest that we have at Neuroscape is to understand how we can deliver psychedelic treatments in a more personalized and precisely targeted way to lead to better outcomes by changing the environment and, and other things before and after the treatment. So your work kind of, there's an intersection between art and neuroscience. You were also a photographer. So how does photography uh, like, you know, bleed into your work? And does that give any insights to what you're researching? Or not at all? Just yeah, it, it's it's all over the place. Photography is, is, is a love of mine. I've been a nature photographer for over 20, 25 years now. Um, it, it is still a big part of my life. And 
I see nature photography and my science as, as very connected. They always have been. Even the act of nature photography to me is very similar to the act of being a scientist. It's discovering organization and beauty in nature uh, using tools. Those tools might be a microscope, an MRI or a camera. So to me, they, they've always been coherent. Um, nature is also about attention and perception. And so there's a lot of cognitive elements in certainly in nature photography, but even in enjoying nature. But where they've intersected now is that, well, first of all, all of our games have elements of art in them. Um, and many of them have nature elements too, interestingly enough. Um, but now I'm going even deeper into the connection and, and the psychedelic conversation that we had is very relevant to this. So there is a literature that exposure to nature, real world nature, like going on a hike in a beautiful forest can have benefits on your cognition mood, anxiety, um, stress regulation, uh, re restoration from cognitive fatigue, uh, attention improvement are all benefits that have been documented. I'm interested in how we might present nature environments digitally delivered, and not just what you're seeing, but see, hear, smell, and feel. Multi-sensory immersion technologies is something that we're working on at Neuroscape. So you could create a beautiful nature environment and then study with recordings how that might impact your brain, how it might change your level of arousal and your mood and your attention levels and whether those changes might last beyond uh, the engagement in that environment. And then of course, might an environment like this have positive benefits during a psychedelic treatment? So art, music, story, um, especially with an emphasis on nature is a big part of my life and is a big part of the research that we do. And it's becoming more so all the time. So you're speaking about like digital technology, giving that experiential like, you know, treatment to your patients. Uh, but this is something that is improving over the days and it's neuro data is being collected. You're able to use variable devices uh, in terms of responsibility and ethics. How would you grapple with that in the future, given the fact that like all this data is available? Like, OK, I'm not saying that you're unethical, you're, you're fine. But we see time and time again where like, you know, data is breached. Uh, people's uh, information is being used against them. It's almost like your data, like this whole thing with Facebook leaks there, like, you know, your yeah. clicks, your friends, what you like has been sold for cash. Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly important point. Um, you know, as what we do gets more and more powerful, which I think it has been over the last 15 years and will over the next 15 years, what it will mean is that two things in terms of ethics and responsibility. One is that as we create more and more positive changes, we have more and more potential to do negative changes. So that's worth recognizing and something that we take very seriously. And the other is that as we record more data, richer, more comprehensive, more meaningful data about a person, and as it begins to leave the lab and go to people's homes on devices that they have at home and, and through their phones, there is an increased risk of privacy breaches and security issues. And so we take that very seriously. We use HIPAA compliance and very high level security and university approval. And we really take every step we can to make sure that this data is treated as highly secure as is 
possible, um, and you know more so than you know other data like normal video game data, social media data is definitely treated, um, sort of like the level that health health data is treated. It doesn't mean there won't be problems, but we recognize how sensitive this data is and will become even more so, and so we're constantly engaging with um, you know policy and technology groups uh, to understand how we can keep ramping up that level of security around the data that we will be using for our tools as time goes on. I'm going to bounce off a bit on something that you mentioned briefly previously. You spoke about like, you know, the education system or the environment that like it's not prepared enough for working with people with ADHD, like, you know, there is nothing, there's, there's no structure set in place. From your side, what would you recommend? Like, especially, like, imagine I'm a teacher and I, like, encounter a student who has attention issues. Rather than medicating, what would you put in place for that teacher or, like, you know, a school system, schooling system, which would help overall without actually, again, prescribing something and then moving on? Like, just another statistic. Yeah, it's it's one of our main goals at Neuroscape. We have a clinical division where we are looking at how the technologies, the experiential medicines we create can help different populations. And there we're thinking about the FDA. But we also have an education division. And they use they use the same tools, interestingly enough, like the same essentially the same type of testing, the same type of games. But we're focusing our efforts there on studying healthy children, um, or at least children that don't have diagnoses. I mean, every every brain is challenged in its own unique way. Um, who knows what healthy means? But you know, clearly, children that are that are at least undiagnosed and doing relatively well relative to you know any population that you could compare them to. Can they benefit from these tools as, you know, sort of what we think of as education? So broadening our, our idea of what education is beyond teaching about math and reading and geometry and geography, all important things. But having education also take on improving cognitive function in developing minds, attention, memory, perception, decision making, reasoning, imagination, creativity, emotional regulation, empathy, and compassion. All of those things need to be prioritized um, in our children. And we can't just necessarily hope that it happens at home um, where it should happen, of course. But I think that this is also part of what education should be about. Um, can we use the tools that we create often in the clinical domain to help support this? We believe so. And we're doing those studies now. So school children, um, whether or not they're diagnosed with a condition, are now playing our games and research studies where we're looking at how it how it improves their attention and maybe their emotional regulation, um, but also how it improves reading and math because these things are connected. So that's the good thing. It's not like they're dissociated where, oh, they're going to get better at all these things in their cognition and their math and reading is going to get worse, right? They, they now have better mental cognitive tools to apply to the things that are measured that are felt to be so important um, in, in determining how a child passes through their educational uh, career. So that's um, that's something that we believe in and we are actively looking for funding to advance that. We've put a lot of work on the clinical side, but the educational side, how I'm defining education here, I think has a lot of potential to really help. And 
now that I have a young uh, child myself, I feel even more personally motivated to see these tools get validated and then how they're worked into the into the education system. You also mentioned not no brain is like, you know, there's no such thing as a normal brain. How does like, you know, what would you recommend and, and like, you know, to, uh, for us to understand and also accept that there's no such thing as one normal type of brain and the neurodiversity of it all? Yeah, the neurodiversity is, is to be celebrated, um, I, I, I believe, strongly. And, you know, it, we, we don't want to be just carbon copy computer AI versions of each other, right? We're, it's it's that diversity that leads to personalities and all the wonderful differences that makes everyone special and it should should be celebrated. But there are certainly there's certainly the parallel um, and even complementary view that it would be nice to know what your diversity is, right? What are your strengths? What are things that are suboptimal or even just different? Um, so can we give people a better profile about how their brains are working so that they can understand how they're diverse in what ways um, and then have the choice to strengthen or change or, you know, to guide certain things in a different direction if they choose to, if it makes sense. Um, so that's how I view it more is that we want to use, and we, we're, we're developing a lot of diagnostic tools, tools to be able to do this, like to understand so an individual and their teacher and their parent and their doctor and you know all the stakeholders that are involved in helping someone, their mentors, their therapists, having a really quantitative, clear uh, picture dashboard of what your cognition looks like. So you can see where your diversity is and what it is and how it relates to other people around you. And then a set of tools that you can push and pull on those as as you choose. That's really how I think about this more than treating everyone as one size fits all, wanting everyone to be one size fits all, or um, or, or thinking that these tools need to be you know targeted to everyone. They're more likely to be precision tools that are used to refine how someone's brain is working. So you're an entrepreneur, you're a photographer, you're a neuroscientist among some of your like, you know, key skills. What, do you feel like it's important to work across different disciplines? And like, does it benefit or does it challenge you with like, you know, the way that you work? Does it help with collaborations? Yeah, I mean, it is the only way I know. It's, I've always been this way. Um, I, I have a broad set of things that I do uh, in my life and that I do every single day. I could tell you that it doesn't, I don't feel scattered and I don't feel spread thin. I feel really busy, uh, but happy, but busy. But I don't feel scattered. And the reason why I don't, even though I do so many things, is that I really sort of only do one thing, right? Like everything that I do, even if it's photography or business or invention or investing, um, running my science lab, working on the board of Achilles, it's it's all the same thing. It's really all trying to understand nature and improve our interaction with it and with ourselves. They, it's all the same thing. So I don't have like lots of different backgrounds or messages. I don't have different voices that I speak in depending on who I'm talking to. And um, all of those things make it feel very cohesive to me. Uh, I, I know other people that 
maybe do less things than me, but they're really different than each other. And I imagine they feel a lot more torn apart and scattered. So that's at least how I engage in the world. Like I'm fine. I always describe my life as like a tree. Um, I am fine with new branches, but I am not planting another tree in my life. Uh, so I've always tried to decide, is this a branch or a new tree? Hmm. A lot of people are not able to handle the pressure. They suffer from stress and anxiety because of that. And that is a significant, like, you know, has a significant impact on cognitive decline. What would you recommend? What techniques or tools you have that would help them mitigate it or like even manage it? Okay, some stressful situations you just can't avoid. So what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, I think at, at the basics, there's a combination of meta-awareness and introspection and being being aware that you are stressed. You know, I mean, it's sometimes simple to say people are stressed, but sometimes they're not even aware. They're just feeling the burden of it, but not actually recognizing that their life is such that it is stressful and that it is having a negative consequence on them. So I always like to start with awareness because awareness is not always present. Um, and so learning how to observe yourself, how to observe what your breathing is like or what your mood is feeling like or how you're responding to people um, and what your mood is and all of these things I think is step one and maybe you could do that on yourself maybe you need to work with a therapist or a significant other or someone to help understand yourself better but i think that without understanding change is really really difficult so starting there to me in whatever way someone gets there is really important and then how you regulate it is you know a it's very personal on the situation so i don't have a general prescription but change is really hard it's worth recognizing that it's not going to happen overnight finding what the causes of it are is also not going to happen overnight but it's really important too and then developing better ways of interacting with the world around you whether it's the people in your world or your work or your play or even with yourself how you view yourself and how you judge yourself is the steps that you need to take to change that and that happens slowly it happens through a plan it happens through new habit formation, but I think there's a path for people there. Um, independent of that sort of general uh, advice or, you know, approach, there are things that I think are just generally good for everyone. Uh, time and nature, I'll say it again, because I, I, I believe the research on it and, I, and my own personal experience has been that you know, a walk in the woods, interacting with trees and being around water, um, whether it's a stream, a river, an ocean, a lake is really restorative. And so that's a, a nice way um, of coming out of a stressful environment. And then the other is slowing down and just stopping every once in a while and paying attention to your breath and paying attention to nothing, allowing your mind to just relax. I think that those are really important things as well. What exciting projects or something that, you know, is in the pipeline for you that people should look out for? Um, well, you know, things in the pipeline are that, um, well, Achilles treatment um, for ADHD is right now targeted towards eight to 12 year olds. That's the only thing that we're approved for. That's going to change. I feel very confident on that. We just announced recently data on adolescence um, in a study 
where they showed two times the benefit on attention. And just very recently, we showed data with on adults with ADHD. Um, this, this studies that Kelly led that showed seven times the benefit on attention compared to children. So positioning these for approval so that these uh, this tool, EndeavorRx, is available to everyone across the lifespan with attention deficits um, and maybe even even beyond is something to pay attention to uh, because it, it should be happening based upon the data that we now have. And so that's really exciting. Um, it's a big frustration in my life that so many things I work on are not available to people. Um, but we're taking our time and we're trying to do it the right way so that when it's out there, people feel confident on it, that there's decades of research and the validation's clear and the papers are available and sure you can argue all sorts of things but we reach a level of security that we know we did the work and that's why it takes so long so that's something to look out for anyone out there that's suffering attention impairments that we are working diligently and now have evidence um, that will hopefully expand access and where can people find your work what books they should look out for uh and like, you know, what do you recommend to someone who's just starting off and like to get, like learn about your work? Yeah, so I have like a, a website, Ghazali.com, my last name, which is just sort of my aggregator um, of all my things for my photography. I put podcasts on there and um, articles that I write, scientific articles and companies that I might be excited about. Um, when Achille has announcements, I put it on there. So that's that's why I created that website, just because I have a lot of things going on and it's sort of an aggregator. But Achille has a website and Neuroscape, my center at UCSF, has a website that is loaded with much deeper dives um, than on Gazada.com. But Gazada.com does have links to all these things. So that's why it's an easy you know place to dive into other, as uh, you know, the things that I work on and getting to deeper sources. And what about books that would you, someone starting off and they've not heard of your work, which one would you tell them, like, you know what, read this first and then the rest will follow later? Yeah, I think The Distracted Mind is a good book. I'm not just trying to, you know, sell, sell, sell books, uh, but it's, it's, look, I had to be like, drag kicking and screaming to writing a book because I mostly want to do research. But I did want to tell the story about The Distracted Mind, and I think it does a reasonably good job of talking about what we're, dealing with right now in terms of how our brains work and what is going on around us. And then it does in the last chapters, it's not dated yet, but it soon will be about these approaches we're talking about, about behavioral change and cognitive change through other sources. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure. I had a great time. Thank you.